Friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 1. The letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me give a couple of uh, quick announcements. Uh, Student ministry, Sunday, November 5th. Sunday night, November 5th. More information will come uh, soon. Um, But just put that, mark that on your calendar, Sunday night, November 5th. Uh, We're still working out on the time parts that will work best for families. Um, It won't be as late. Normally it would be 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We may be adjusting those times forward a little bit because it is a school night. And so um, we'll probably be ending around 7.30, but then we're needing to figure out a start time. So, But at least mark that on your calendars um, for uh, the student ministry. And then we are beginning a new series today on the five solas. And I'm going to talk about those in in just a moment. Um, But if you would uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and that will be our scripture reading today. Verses 1 through 17. And then we'll actually have a second scripture passage that will be part of our reading in the beginning time this morning. So the letter of Paul to the Romans, verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And God, God's word says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous 
shall live by faith. And if you would turn to our second passage uh, today, and that would be 2 Kings. Second Kings chapter 22. And I'll be reading um, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all of the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keeper of the threshold have collected for the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the um, uh, house of the Lord, repairing the house, Verse 6, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into the hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book of, to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king. And reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, and Achbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She now, now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. 
But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. These are the reading of God's word. Well, this morning we are starting a brand new series, as I mentioned earlier, called The Five Solas. The Five Solas of the Reformation. And we're, if you don't understand what I mean by sola and you don't understand by a reformation and the Protestant Reformation, I'm going to explain all of that a little in a little bit. Um, but for those of you who might know it, you, the first passage that I read in Romans chapter 1 might seem to make sense with uh, the topic of the Protestant Reformation because those verses, especially verses at the end of that passage, were hugely influential in starting the Reformation that swept across Europe 500 years ago. Next week, October 31st, marks the 500th anniversary of what is considered kind of the watershed moment of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517, is when uh, a stout uh, but intelligent um, German monk by the name of Martin Luther had posted his 95 theses onto the castle door of the church in his town, Wittenberg. And that began... Or what many think that was the moment that kind of started the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was already starting kind of taking place in certain pockets beforehand. But this was kind of the seminal moment. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more here in just a bit. But what happened 500 years ago might seem strange for us to read this second passage in 2 Kings chapter 22. This is about Josiah, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, if we kind of go back and keep in mind uh, Israel's history, Israel was established in the land that God had promised them. David was their king and uh, they were thriving and at peace. David dies and Solomon takes over and he is the one who ends up building the temple in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, where sacrifices are made uh, there in Jerusalem. And when Solomon passes away, uh, kind of a, a civil war breaks out between two of his sons. One of his sons takes the ten northern tribes. The other son takes the two southern tribes. The northern tribe is referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. Eventually, the northern kingdom is conquered. There's not a single good king in the northern kingdom. All of them are wicked. All of them have leading the people into worshiping of other gods and other idols and those kinds of things. The southern kingdom was kind of a mixed bag. There were mostly bad kings and a handful of, of good ones. When Josiah comes along and he becomes king at eight years old, he's coming off of the reign of a really bad king. But Josiah is actually uh, 
one of the good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And what's interesting is that 10 years into his reign, he'd already started to kind of stop some of the worshiping of other idols and other deities and those kinds of things. And for 10 years he reigns. Uh, but 10 years into the reign, he goes, you know what? We want to kind of repair the temple of the Lord. They just kind of do some repair work, some cleanup, some stuff, hire some woodworkers, hire some stone workers, and we gather the money. And so he sends the high priest to go and collect some of the money from the, the offerings that were given so that it could be used to repair the temple. And what's interesting is they're going in and cleaning this out. This this strange event. It's almost something like out of a Monty Python. Like they find this book and the guy goes, I found a book. And he shows it to the other guys. Oh, it's a book. And they read it and they recognize right away what this, this book is. Wait a second. This book is the law of Moses. The law that God had given to Moses that he wrote down. The law that every single king in Israel's history was to write a, a copy in his own hand so that he would know it and it would never depart from him all the days. This was the thing that uh, they were to follow, the people of Israel were to follow so that they could be living according to what God had called them to in the land. Keep in mind, this is uh, hundreds and hundreds of years after uh, after they'd entered into the promised land, hundreds of years after David had passed away, hundreds of years after the temple was built. And they seem to have like kind of just discovered this book of the law that was gone, missing, lost. Can you imagine? It would be imagining something like this today. Like if all of our Bibles just kind of disappeared, they were put into a closet Yet we kept coming to church. We kept going and doing our religious duties. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, we just kind of found this. We go, oh, what is this? Oh, it's a book. <laughs> you know, like, you know, that's what I mean by Monty Python, this strange thing. The book of the law of God was lost. Lost, gone. This good news was missing. Now, some of you may ask, um, how is that possible? Why would God allow his word to just kind of disappear? Well, actually, um, God did let that happen. He actually foretold of it. Many, about 120 so years before Josiah, a prophet by the name of Amos says to the northern kingdom of Israel at that time, he says, here's the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So there was a famine of God's word. And that's where Judah found itself a century or so later. But in God's providence, this word was rediscovered in Josiah. When he read it, he received it and he repented and he led a restoration in all of Judah at the time. All of the other mixing of other idols and gods. He he tore down all of the idols of the other deities. He tore down the statues to false gods and revival of sorts came upon Judah in those days. There was a famine of hearing God's word and it was lost. And gone until God's word itself, the very words itself, pierced Josiah's heart. 
Well, 500 years ago, this is why I read this passage. 500 years ago, there was a famine of hearing the word of God of sorts. Very similar situation happened. The word of God was lost. Gone. The gospel was buried inside of the very church that was supposed to be proclaiming it. The scriptures were right there in plain sight, but yet the good news in the gospel was buried. All, all while they went around and did their religious duties. So this week we want to mark this event and this series is going to mark this event of this recapturing of this gospel. And so I want to do it by telling a little bit about the life of this uh, stout and intelligent German monk. His name is Martin Luther. He was born in 1483 in Erfurt, Germany. He came from a very devout Catholic family. And by the way, um, this, uh, when I say Catholic family, what you need to understand is in Europe in, this, in these days, there was only one church. There were no like denominations, you know, like if you were upset with the Catholic church, you couldn't just go over to the Methodist church. There was none. It was one church. And it was highly connected to the state, too. It's kind of hard to imagine, but if you can imagine just one gigantic church that had kind of a monopoly over everything. Now, there was a church in the East, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church, but I'm talking in Europe. There was only one. And everybody was connected to it. Every single person who was born in Europe, unless there were pockets of like Jews uh, or those kind of things, they were baptized Catholic. And he so obviously came from a very devout Catholic family. His father was a coal miner. Um, he wasn't super wealthy, but he was not poor either. He actually made a very good life for himself. And his, Martin Luther's father wanted to send him to law school. His son was not going to work in the mines. His son was going to work in law. And Luther actually excelled in his studies. He was very brilliant. He worked very, very hard. And he had a, the prospect of a very, very promising career in law. But Luther was deeply troubled in soul. He was greatly agitated at the thought that one day he would actually have to come face to face with God and give him an account about his sin. He was terrified that God was this uh, wrathful judge who was watching and condemning his every move and his every thought. Though he was successful in his studies, he was anxious and troubled in his soul and he was not at peace at all. And he was terrified. He was terrified about death and what awaited him after death. Well, one day, while he is in law school, in 1505, you think he's about 21 years at this time, he was walking on the outskirts of a Saxon village. Then suddenly the sky grew really dark. Clouds started to form. It began to rain. And then there was a crash of lightning that struck the ground not very far away from where Martin Luther was walking. It was so close that it actually knocked him to the ground. And as he was struggling to get up, in terror, abject terror, he cried out to St. Anne. St. Anne would be the patroness saint of minors. Makes sense, right? His father was a minor. In terror, he cries out, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. 
swears a vow right there at that moment. Of course, he was helped. He did survive. And he decided he wanted to make good on that vow. He was convinced that this lightning strike, this was an act of God. And so he made good on that vow. And so he left the law school. He chose to go into the monastery. And of the seven or so that were in the town that he lived at that time, he chose the strictest of orders, the Augustinians, named after uh, Caesar, uh, not Caesar, named after St. Augustine, not Augustine. That's in Florida. His father was furious. His father was furious because he wanted him to pursue the lucrative path of law. But Luther believed that he needed to not only make good on his vow. He believed he believed that going to the monastery was the only way that was going to solve the, the trouble that caused him in his soul. The only way that he could actually overcome uh, his sin and have a sure pathway to heaven and to appease an ever demanding and judging God was to go to the monastery. Right? Because the monastery would be able to purge him of all of his sin. So Luther enters into the monastery. He was a strident monk. He was as uh, strident a monk as he was a law student. He worked hard at it. And he fasted more than what was required of the monks. He'd often fast for days on end. He'd go days and days and days without even a morsel of food. And he did this often. He, uh, it's even said that he refused to uh, sleep with blankets. Because he wanted to have his, the most difficult and trying monastic experiences he could. And so in Germany, in the winter, he, he nearly froze to death on some nights. He worked and he worked and he worked. Some days he felt as though he had made it all the way through his entire day without a sin. But then at last uh, thought at night, he would think, but did I fast enough? Did I pray enough? He was an intense monk. He spent hours in his confessional. As a matter of fact, his kind of religious uh, supervisor at the monastery, a guy named by, uh, the, by the name of Johann uh, Stalpitz, um, because he would be the one that he would have to confess to. Luther would literally go to confession, and the confessions would last for hours. I think one of them was six hours long. Can you imagine being the guy in the confessional that had to listen to all of this? He was getting fed up with it. Oh, he was like, this was driving him uh, crazy. Later, Luther says this about his time in the monastery. He says, I was a good monk. That's probably an understatement. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> all my brothers in the monkery... Uh, in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. But none of this gave him any tranquility. None of it gave him any peace. Eventually, he was so uh, burdened by this thought that his true feelings of God kind of started to come out. What was motivating him eventually through all of this. One time his supervisor asked him about his understanding of the love of God. And he admitted these words, love him, I hate him. That's what Luther said. Because of his vision of God 
judgment on him and his soul and his effort to work and to work and to work. And none of it, none of it bringing any solace to his soul at all. And the reason was obviously because of his sin. He was tormented by it. He knew that he could not stand before a holy God because of uh, because of his sin. And he went into the monastery escaping sin and to lead a holy life. But he couldn't escape his condition. As a matter of fact, he later said, I went in to escape. The, I went into the monastery to escape that sinful man only to discover that I brought him in the monastery with me. His superior at the monastery, knowing how troubled he was, eventually sent him away from that monastery to another monastery in Wittenberg, Germany. And while he was there, he worked on his doctorate in theology, which he obtained in 1512. So seven years he'd been a monk at this point. And he was assigned after graduation to be a lecturer at Wittenberg University. He was a teacher and a lecturer. And he began then to teach the Bible. He began with the Psalms in 1513 through 1515. And then in 1515, he started to teach through Romans. And then Galatians in 1516. That led into 1517. And then in Hebrews, he lectured on uh, in 1517, he lectured on uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. And it was during that time in his study of Romans and his lecturing over Romans that he was truly converted. We'll come back to that in a moment. But it was also at this time that God was working in him and that he also had some revelations about the Catholic Church at that day and what the Catholic Church was doing. So a little background on the medieval Catholic Church. It was kind of a mix between New Testament Christianity and old European paganism. Hundreds of years or so earlier, the church had developed um, the doctrine of purgatory. There's a picture of Martin Luther there. So uh, here's the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory it was kind of a, a, a supposed middle state between heaven and hell. And as a matter of fact, church councils, just uh, two different church councils, uh, about 100 years or so before uh, Luther was born, had really defined this doctrine of purgatory. It was kind of a place of cleansing off of your sins, but it was also a place of cleansing through punishment. It was not eternal. It was temporary, but it was uh, as long as you needed. So as long as uh, you, your sins needed to be purged and cleansed and expunged away. So this was the kind of the teaching in the Catholic Church. When you die, you didn't go to either heaven or hell. You, when you died, you went to purgatory. And in purgatory, it would be determined whether you were fit to go to heaven or whether you would go to hell from there. Some went to hell directly, they would say. Obviously, support for this is hard to find in the Bible. It's hard to find in church history. It's nowhere been accepted prior to that point, nor was it accepted in the Eastern Church outside of Europe. But it was thought that souls that would be in purgatory can be helped and their term in purgatory shortened um, 
by the acts of people who are alive at that time. So the acts of the living can help those who are in purgatory. And this leads us to the, the other slide here on indulgences. An indulgence was, it was this belief uh, that the church has the right to dispense benefits or merits from a treasury of merits that were accumulated by Christ and the saints. And so, kind of, you get the picture here. If you were to do prayers, or if you were to give alms, or if you were to do uh, a certain parts of the, the Mass in the Catholic Church in those days, the Eucharist, could be offered on behalf of the dead. It's known as the Requiem Mass. If you did those things, you can accumulate indulgences that would get a relative of yours out of purgatory faster. This is the church that Martin Luther lived in. And Martin Luther, as his studies of the scripture, and again, he was a very intelligent man. He had he'd started in law school and achieved quite a bit in law and ended up getting a doctorate in theology and was teaching all of these things and was teaching the scriptures. And he says, he, there, nowhere does he see any of these kind of practices. And one day, um, the Catholic Church appointed kind of a, a grand commissioner by uh, the, a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel who was responsible for the dispensing of the indulgences in the region of Germany. Now, the church in those days, the structures were kind of maybe in need of repair, and so they decided to do a fundraiser. Again, a little similar to Josiah's day, because the temple was probably needing some work, and so they were just taking some of the offerings that were already given. The church here thought, well, we'll do a fundraiser, but we'll do it a little differently. Maybe we can sell those indulgences. So maybe people don't need to do prayers or vigils or they don't need to do a requiem mass. If they were to just give money, they could buy indulgences and then those merits would go to helping get a relative out of purgatory. This is what was happening in those days. And this is what kind of got underneath Luther's skin. As a matter of fact, Tetzel was uh, known as saying, for every coin going through town, saying, for every coin in the coffer that rings, a soul from purgatory springs. This, along with a lot of other abuses that were happening in the Catholic Church, and with what Luther was experiencing in reading God's word, he issues these challenges. So 500 years ago, on October 13th, he nails these 95 theses. And we don't have any evidence that he's standing there actually with the mallet knocking, you know, these things onto the door. Maybe he had somebody else post them. And this was not a super major act of defiance, by the way. Uh, this was kind of a typical practice. That would be kind of like a community bulletin board. You could post up anything on the church's door so people could come by and see it as they would be going in for their daily mass or confessions or penance or whatever. They'd see this thing. Oh, here's so-and-so's hiring, babysitter, you know. Oh, here. 95 theses. And it was kind of open discussion and dialogue. And so here, let me read to you a couple of the highlights from some of these theses. Thesis 6. And I think I have some of them on here. Yes, thesis 6. The Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing that it has been remitted by God. 
or to be sure by remitting guilt in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right, uh, if his right to grant remission in these cases were disregarded, the guilt would certainly remain unforgiven. Here's thesis 21. Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error when they say a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Thesis 28. It is certain that when money clinks in the money casket, probably quoting Tetzel here, greed and avarice can be increased. But when the church intercedes, the result is in the hands of God alone. Theses 36 and 37. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgence letters. Any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all of the blessings of Christ and the church. And, thus, and this is granted him by God, not by the Pope, by even without indulgence letters. Thesis 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. And the grand finale. 92. Away then with all of those prophets who say to the people of Christ, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Quoting Jeremiah there. And then 94 and 95. Christians should be Exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. This act went beyond what Luther had thought. He Kind of was just opening this up for a discussion, dialogue. Let's have a, a, a conversation, you know, a social conversation about these things. Somebody ended up picking this up, copying it down, sending it to the printing press, made copies, and it ended up spreading all throughout Germany and all throughout Europe, and a flame kind of took off and beyond. Luther was eventually brought to uh, the Diet of Worms, not Diet of Worms, not like the kids' book. You know, it's the Diet of Worms, where he was challenged by Pope and Emperor to um, to deny and condemn all of his writings. We'll get to that later. But the spark had been lit, and a fire had started to sweep all through Europe. But let's go back to his conversion. This is kind of where his course of life had led him to that moment. But I want to go back a couple of years, probably about three years prior, when he started to teach on and lecture on the book of Romans. It was his conversion that made this possible during his lecture to Romans. And he came across these two verses that we'll read again in our, uh, from our first scripture reading. Where Paul writes in verse 16 of Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live 
by faith. Paul writes that he is not ashamed of this gospel. He's writing to the church at Rome. He admits that he had not been there to visit them yet. He had tried. He wanted to go and evangelize Rome and then wanted to even go further west towards Spain. And he was going to use that as a stopping point. And he wanted to write ahead to the church that he planned to visit. And he says, you know, I want to go and I want to give you a blessing and actually will be mutually blessed and encouraged by my visit there. But his main theme in writing is wanted to write about the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Probably there were accusations of him, maybe uh, misrepresentations about his gospel. And he says, no, I am not ashamed about the gospel at all. For, he says, and here's the reason why, for it is the power of God for salvation. And the way this is structured, God is the source of the gospel. This gospel comes from God. And the result of the gospel is salvation of souls. And that this gospel is powerful to save. Think about it. If you were to be asked, what would be, uh, how would you describe a demonstration of the power of God? What would you th say? Creation? God speaking the universe into existence? Just by the word of his mouth, speaking planets and galaxies and stars and sun and the earth and mountains and seas? What else would you think? Maybe the parting of the Red Sea or any number of miracles in the Bible. Majestic acts of God. What would you say would be the demonstration of the power, the power of God? Paul says here, says for him, it was the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the gospel that takes dead people and makes them alive. And who is this for? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he says. So the availability of salvation is to everyone who believes. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, for in it, and the it here is referring to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or you could kind of say faith from first to last or beginning to end. The righteousness of God is revealed from beginning to end as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the part that really tripped Luther up. Remember, Luther was appointed professor of uh, Bible at Wittenberg University. And as he was teaching this, remember, he was angry with God. God seemed to, to him to be more of a terrifying judge than a merciful savior. That thought would have been the farthest from his mind. And then he came to this verse. What could Paul mean by Romans 1.17? He thought. Especially when it is stated the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Luke, uh, uh, Luther goes through and tells us uh, how this dilemma was resolved. And here, uh, here is Luther's own words. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood uh, to the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace... And sheer mercy, he justifies 
us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. He would later call this truth, this gospel, the righteousness shall live by faith. He would later go on to say that this is, quote, the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. He called it, quote, the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler and judge over all other kinds of doctrines. And he said, quote, if the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist one hour. The righteous shall live by faith. Friends, this is what was lost. This is what was recovered for Luther in his study of the scriptures, in studying Romans. This was what was buried under centuries of religious practice in the church in those days. The good news that God justifies, makes righteous those who believe in Jesus. The righteous by faith. We need, we need this rediscovery today too. This truth that Luther recovered ignited all of Europe 500 years ago and spread throughout the world. Millions and millions of people would go to bed at night not knowing even in the slightest that they could be forgiven, that they could be saved. That they could go into the presence of the eternal God forever. None. Imagine this truth that Luther was conveying. That people would say, you mean I can know that I'm forgiven? You mean that I can know that I am accepted on the merits, not of what I perform, but on the merits of another? How that would radically change everything. This culminated in the rediscovery of this gospel. So what is this reformation that I'm speaking of? What is this? What happened these several hundred years ago? There was a major schism that took place between the Catholic Church in those days and these reformers who were trying to reform that church. They weren't radicals. They had just discovered this glorious truth and wanted to, to change what was taking place. But uh, no. Inevitably, there was not going to be a recovery of those things. They were always going to be some that were going to hold to that, that way. And so the Reformation, this Protestant Reformation was necessary. 
because it was a recovery of the gospel. And there were several mottos or slogans or declarations or pillars. There's lots of different terms you could use to describe it that set aside, set aside this group of people who were trying to recover the gospel and reform the church and the church that didn't want reforming. And it was kind of divided over these five um, solas, we call them. Sola is being the, the Latin word for alone or only. And these five were kind of the, the pillars of this reformation. The, the line in the sand between the reformers and the Catholic church. And they were sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. Scripture as opposed to scripture and human tradition. Or scripture and human tradition and the magisterium of the Pope and the bishops as the only interpreters of the scripture. Sola gratia or grace alone. That we are saved by the grace of God alone and not on human ability or working with God to save ourselves. Sola fide or faith alone, that we are saved by faith in Christ and his works alone and not in our faith in Christ and our works and penance and sacraments and vigils and those kind of things. Solus Christus, which means Christ alone, that we are saved through one mediator, the man Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, and not through Jesus and through saints and through priests and through bishops and through popes. And the capstone to all of these, soli deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. Based on these other four, that there is no boasting before God, that this is purely the work of his goodness and his grace. Friends, the Reformation is not over. Although it happened maybe 500 years ago, and these things were kind of the battle lines were drawn 500 years ago, every single one of these truths of the Reformation is undermined, compromised, assaulted, attacked, ignored, or buried, even in the church today. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to look at each of these five solas in depth. Understand the situation that was happening at that time. And to really kind of uh, separate out these two issues. And then look at the ways in which this is happening in our world today. And how we can be the flag bearers for this kind of reformation today. Where we could be a part of this ongoing reformation. An ongoing recovery of the gospel. That the righteous live by faith. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... Give to you all glory alone. We thank you that in your providence, that your sovereign working of your plan 
that you have brought about these kind of moments. That the very power of your own words are able to ignite a revival among your people. And I think of Josiah and how your very words read coming into the ears of that king and how it turned all of Israel around. That your word was discovered, buried under all of the religiosity and ritual of that day. And God, I think of how that was true 500 years ago. That your word was buried, held in bondage by a church that didn't want your word to go out to the people. And that had doctrines placed over the top of it and ritual and ceremony that obscured your word. God, we're grateful that you, through this man, Martin Luther, and many of the other reformers, were able to bring your word to light. And that a revival would sweep through Europe. God, we pray that the same thing would happen for us today. God, we ask your blessing upon our continued study in these coming weeks as we look at these, these sola of the Reformation. These only. God, may you open up our eyes and give us deeper understanding in these, these truths. And to the very scriptures as we explore what your word would have to say in each one of these five. But God, we ask that you would cause our hearts to just be inflamed. That you would take these truths and set them afire in our life. That we would seek our sole authority in your word. That we would cling to this gospel of righteousness by faith. Through grace and in Christ alone. And that God, we, our, our lives would be so impacted by it that all of life would be lived before your face and to your glory alone. God, we ask that you would make that so in us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand for closing benediction? Brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.